welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. All right, and we are just rolling about like the the midway through uh, the the fall hunting season here in Manitoba, and uh, we're back with episode one hundred and thirty six of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Welcome, thanks for joining us. And uh, tonight, well, right now, Tristan uh, is on the intro here with me, and uh, a little bit later through this episode, Tristan's going to roll solo with uh, Mister Paul McCarney and dive into some topics yeah it's great to catch up with paul having back on the podcast uh obviously if you haven't listened to the first episode that we did with paul uh we we had a lot of uh discussions around ethical kind of considerations and what it means to be like an ethical hunter conservationist that kind of thing so uh we definitely doubled down on this one and uh really dove into that we call it uh being a lefty hunter but really what it uh, means to be kind of in that space and you know some of the it was kind of a, a dissection of my own life in some ways there too. so it was a it was a cool one for me a little nervous here though because I, I put it myself out there a bit but uh it's done with love and hopefully we we do it to make hunting and conservation kind of more stronger for all across kind of canada if not north america nice that sounds good so um Carrying on to uh, our intro topics, what uh, what have we been up to lately here? We just came out of Moose Camp about a week, I guess it's almost two weeks now. Um, you weren't there, obviously, but uh, well, we're going to do a follow-up episode on the entire Moose Camp. So we're not going to share too many details on the entire story, but uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of heartbreak involved in this. Again, uh, some survival. <laughs> uh few fish stories and uh i was getting a few zolia zolio updates there yeah the old sat phone there and uh which is really handy but it was also yeah it was man wish i was up there but also at the same time there was some you guys definitely encountered some challenges so i can't wait to break that all down with you because i haven't had even a really good chance to break it all down with you guys so to be able to get like the first hand recount here on what was good and what was not so good would just be kind of icing on the cake there yeah they're not being able to be there obviously right yeah but uh spoiler alert we all made it out of camp so um nobody died <laughs> yeah yeah just in case you weren't aware yeah that's funny but uh yeah. we, we've been doing a bit of hunting around home too and you've been uh you've been on the run quite a bit with willie here lately too uh which is good to see you've had him out quite a bit yeah man i've been trying to work him and we we had a busy busy weekend with him and i'll be honest like Monday here, the day, the day after the weekend, we I ran them three times over the weekend, plus some other exercise and training. Monday is the first time I've seen that dog tired. No way. Since we picked him up. I mean, obviously he had some puppy naps back in the day, but like since he's like become like, like stopped with puppy phase, like first time I've seen him tired in a day. And uh, yeah, the first day we put on, I put on 15K walking for chickens in the rain there. I thought he'd be tired after that. No, he wasn't. We went out duck hunting in the evening. Uh, he worked in with Cy, 
the other lab there. And then you and me hunted him the next day and I had some training in between that too. So it's been really cool to, to hunt him. He's still got to learn a few, a few tricks here and there. Uh, maybe have to talk to uh, Dan or, you know, uh, who else is big in dogs there? Tony Peterson, I think, or uh, um, uh, who was the photographer we had on there, Chase? Oh, uh, Craig. Craig, yeah. Yeah, just get a little feedback on. He's uh, it's a little tough. I, I don't know if you, because you, you were on the boat with me. I don't know if you noticed, but he he has trouble. He'll do blind retrieves on land, but he has trouble with the blind retrieves in the water. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like the uh, the the cattails might be a little intimidating at sometimes, especially like you were in a pretty thick wall of weeds there. Yeah, like, so it might be tougher for him to go, as Crawford would would phrase it, crunking through there like a lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even even Sai was getting stuck in the weeds, so he doesn't have the mass too that those labs have to just kind of hurl himself. So, yeah. but it's all been good. eh? it's just, it's, it's fun to work a dog again. I don't know how you feel, but it's, it's fun to hunt over dogs. So. Oh man, it's good to see them. And you get, you feed off their excitement because they're just vibrating in the boat the entire time. And then it was good to see like Willie, he was out there and he was retrieving birds, which is like goal exactly. number one, right? Almost. For well, yeah. besides pointing, right? But he's retrieving birds yeah. in the water, retrieving ducks, which is sweet, and uh, it can only go up from here, right? Yeah, yeah. But so I've, sometimes you get a little wound up in the details, and you just like I try to slow down a little and just remember why we're out there, and you know, just appreciate that relationship with the dog and and what you're doing. Because when I think about what we did with Remington, like just nothing but good memories. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, exactly. So, Definitely got a bit of uh, the taste of uh, the the dual dog system though out there again. <laughs> There's a lot of cussing, a lot of a lot of name yelling, and uh, yeah. it, was, it was pretty funny. Um, those there's almost, almost like the dogs are trained quite well, and and they do, both do a great job. But it's like Sai for sure has a bit of that like jealousy role in him, where he's got to keep tabs on all the ducks. And if Willie had an extra duck in his boat, he's coming <laughs> to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i've never been uh it was almost like he boarded me like a pirate there like i've never been like <laughs> ever been attacked like that before when he came in to check the one like little teal that we had in the boat yeah that was <laughs> hilarious yeah. to take off. one cool yeah. thing about last night's hunt too is we kind of did a bit of mentoring there um <laughs> brought out one of my neighbors and he had i'd thought he had hunted birds before but apparently he hasn't really done any bird hunting said he's gone out with grandpa a couple times but he had uh, had the full out bird hunting suit on and made a uh, one crack shot anyways and yeah. uh made a few other shots had a nice shotgun and he was down to stick it out through that shit weather man yeah so it was kind of cool having him out there he was in good spirits and enjoyed it and uh but man was it chilly yeah yeah, we definitely didn't get into the spot that we wanted to because we had a, a few few issues there. But uh, it was it was good to be out. Tough weather for sure, and he definitely got a master class in bullshitting. I, I'd say, hundred <laughs> percent, and shenanigans too with just trying to trying to tow a boat back. And we had some breakdown issues with our motor. But uh, um, man, that uh, that cold sure takes it out of you. And uh, I woke up. The next day there this morning just uh with a full-on head cold raging into so it's it's uh 
sure way to kick a kick a virus into high gear if you're out there too so yeah where's on you i i mean i think it's safe to say we are in uh we're in peak wool season at this point in time i know it's like it just hasn't even gone away at this point in time my my wool of it just stays on the bench i put it on every weekend and sometimes during the week even if i'm just doing work outside if the wool of goes on oh yeah i was i was walking the walking the kids to the bus today and i threw it on just uh, because it was pretty frigid out this morning it was pretty nice but the the wind tonight was even worse and i was glad i was wearing some wool base layers that's for sure yeah i thought i had too much of it but one one cool thing that i've i've kind of done with it lately is um the the quarter zip long sleeve yeah has been like my top layer for my morning gym run run so like i head to the gym 6 a.m or whatever and uh throw on like uh exercise like an under armor shirt or something like that and then i'll throw on that uh, quarter zip up wool love piece over top of that and it's perfect gym attire and it's just like keeps you at a good temp and then if you need to take it off you take it off but it's it's great piece to warm up into so i've uh, i've enjoyed that the inverted wool love look did you uh have you got any comments yet at the gym yeah no <laughs> I, there's not too many people rolling in there at 6 a.m i'll tell you that so it's one of the benefits of going early but yeah hitting legs leg day yeah every week for sure nice yeah uh, maybe we should tell people how to get some love here if they haven't figured it out yet yeah so wool love is this, obviously this great product uh merino wool antimicrobial properties keeps you warm when you're wet keeps you smelling fresh when you're stinky so we wear it all the time. It's saved our butts a bunch of times and kept us in the field longer many times. Kept keeps you comfortable. If you want to f- find some wool love, you can head to the website and uh, get a discount. Panoramic 10 will get you 10% off your first order. I think it's Panoramic 10. I'll have to look that up. might be Panoramic 20. But uh, try them both. See, notes. see what works. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. And then uh, on the website, the more you save, or the more you bundle, the more you save too. So the more you buy, the more you save. You can put all kinds of bundles together. Or if you're looking for something easy and accessible, they're also available on Amazon. Check them out. Head there right now. Pick up a few pieces of wool love, and uh, you know, be at your doorstep real quick. Oh, I don't know if I said their website, but it's wool.love is their website. And you can also pick up. There's they also have the sister company Northwool. Same kind of stuff. It's a little fancier, a little thicker. It's like a mid-layer. And it's also uh, great for layering up, too. So check them out, Northwell. Can't go wrong. Yep. Well, should we see what Mr. McCarty has to say here? It was, like I said, it was good catching up with him. And it sounds like he's going to have some pretty good adventures coming up this fall. Let's send it, man. All right. And I want to welcome back to the show, Paul McCarney. Paul, welcome back. Thank you. It's been a while, but uh, yeah, excited to be back. Yeah, and it's been uh, it's been great to connect and just stay in touch in between since uh, since you've been on and you, you've kind of you've had your own move right across the country there. So, um, h- how's it been out west there? You're in Whitehorse now. I'm in Whitehorse. Yeah, that's right. Because last time we were on, I was in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. So I've gone literally corner to corner in the country, as far east as you can be to as far west as now I can be. So yeah, we're in Whitehorse, Yukon now. We've been here a little year and a bit. 
um it's great i mean this it's it's a total dream place um it's been tons of fun so much to do work is good uh yeah so we're loving it i want to i'm gonna ask you more about that in a second but i'm i'm wondering like did you do you have folks out east there that kind of got hit by the storm here that that rolled through recently like is everyone okay what's what's the vibe like on the east coast right now because that would sound pretty serious from what i've been hearing over the news yeah and i've seen some friends posting pictures of trees that are blown over with the sidewalk chunk still attached to them like they've ripped the concrete right out right so yeah everyone that i've spoken to is now enjoying sunny skies and a and a like quite the calm after the storm so um it sounds like it was wild and then it things settled right back down it turned back to sort of a paradise east coast fall but yeah everyone i've spoken to is has been fine and not even didn't have any even any damage to deal with so uh, yeah okay that's good yeah i know some of the some of the other cities weren't as lucky maybe uh even mm-hmm. some houses full houses being torn off the yeah the side of the coast which i mean we don't see here in manitoba so whenever i see that i'm like holy man i couldn't imagine my house being ripped apart like that like you you think you're you think my i think my life's disorganized now i couldn't imagine like just being thrown into the chaos like that i know yeah probably a really grounding experience though like i mean again a good reminder for us to take stock of what's important i suppose yeah and we've had uh in the yukon this summer several landslides including just just up to about a few days ago mudslides coming down on roads and landslides washing out roads and uh multiples of them and that have mm-hmm. closed roads and uh luckily i don't think a lot of you know any kind of injuries or anything but yeah it's you kind of watching all this stuff sort of fall apart and blow up from under you yeah. <laughs> around the country. So, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely gets you alert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, wondering what's next. Well, it um, is, I tell you, we keep, we're keeping, we keep water jugs full now. Hey, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Eh? And oh. I, I might do that going into the winter here too, just cause we're, we're forecasting a real cold one in Manitoba again. And, uh, uh, man, I was thinking last winter there, if the power ever went out for an extended period of time, you'd sure want a few things in place to, mm-hmm. to keep you functional. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how are things, how are, so you said it's, you kind of moved into paradise though, out, out west, uh, following along on social media, you've, you've been mm-hmm. looking busy. You had, what was it, the, the combo, the combo hunt there that you were kind of lined up for between moose and what was it, bear and wolf and something like that? Well, it was so, yeah. So everything has been well. So you, we need you need to be in the Yukon. You need to be a resident here for a year before you can hunt as a resident. So we missed the first. Well, we tagged along with some friends, but we missed our with the, the first year, the first fall we were here, which is last year. We weren't able to buy licenses ourselves. So this is our first year being able to buy our own. But yeah, we've been trying to kind of go to some areas that have multiple species and seasons open. So um, we were in an, an area. Um, couple weekends ago that was a it was moose and bear were open we were in a spot that um that we're going to this weekend that's it's kind of got everything open actually it's got moose caribou bear bison i think and sheep open so we've been trying to find some areas just because we're kind of getting our legs under us with areas and zones and um you know kind of recalibrating to topography and everything we've had a year to kind of explore but just sort of sorting out um, what it, what makes good areas for what species. Uh, so we're trying to kind of go to some areas that have a combination of, of things open, which uh, luckily is 
there are many opportunities for that. Um, and then even small game, we're kind of ripping around just for looking for gross and ptarmigan, which is great too. So, so what's, what's the learning curve been like? Cause like you said, you, you moved virtually to the other side of the country here and I can imagine, and you're from Ontario originally, right? So like yeah. the, the topography and everything I'm sure is uh, just a completely different ball game out there. Steep learning curve, literally um <laughs> hillside steep yeah i mean we lived at sea level i mean like at 10 meters elevation for years right and it doesn't mean we're at you know white horses at like 600 and something so i'm just not that it's different in terms of like breathing we're not going to not you know thousands of feet above sea level it's just that it's like it's just such a different um you're kind of recalibrating everything the scale you're looking at um you know i mean you go into a forest and, and you're looking for deer or bears at 50 yards and you go to another area and you're actually now you're looking at kilometers away right and now you're looking at areas and trying to so you're just like reading the landscape differently and figuring out okay where do i have to get to to see what i need to see and when do i want to be up high and when do i want to be down low so there's all those different options now which has been really cool and i, I mean maybe it's a cliche to anyone who's moved out west it's just sort of then you have the mountains and you know these high areas to get to um but yeah, I mean it's true. It's a it's a steep learning curve, um, and and totally different. Uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say completely different. So from Ontario, it's all different. It's interesting when we were living on the ocean, we'd be out. You'd go out in the water and sort of look up hillsides for think for for bears or let's say, mm-hmm. and um, so you know similarly here, except maybe and you're getting up higher and looking down a little bit. So right. it's a similar sort of a pro. You know, learning to learning to hunt through that kind of spot and stock rather than, um, in a forest, you know, in forested areas, but, um, yeah, just sort of using the the terrain, learning to use the terrain differently and where you're looking on the train, looking up and looking down, looking across and judging distances and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's been fun. So still you're, you got a little experience with the elevation from out east but you're almost using it in, in reverse now in some ways <laughs> exactly yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. oh that's wild yeah oh, I, man it's a nice place i yeah you guys gotta get out here <laughs> every time we talk to someone I know. from the west coast that that's exactly what they say you gotta get out here yeah uh, yeah and uh a few times i have been out i haven't been up that that far north but uh that far west it's been real nice whether it was salmon fishing or even just hanging out in the in the mountains mm-hmm. there's something about it that's for sure yeah and everyone um, i mean so many people hunt here so it's you don't have to go far to be able to just to you know yeah find uh, per, someone to talk to with about it you know how's like the, just the, the sort of how's the season going you, you, it's it's everywhere right so um, are, are people cool. pretty open with it out there or, or are they like oh great here's another east eastern no no every it, hunting is so common here i mean yeah, yeah. that's not to say that it's not without um challenges in terms of social acceptance and sort of management and the political such political situations around hunting um that's certainly there but uh you know it's uh when we moved when we were living in northern labrador that was uh, that was accepted that that was everyone's way of life and newfoundland it was very common and so here as well i mean it's um it, it's super common a lot of people are even if they're not hunting themselves are into wild game and eating wild game. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very open that way, but um, yeah, I mean, it, like as with anywhere it has, it has, you know, social and political kind of challenges and controversies and 
complexities. So totally. yeah. I, I get the feeling we'll chat about those in a, in a few, but uh, <laughs> like just for a little precursor, the, the last time we had you on, we were talking a lot about kind of the ethics of hunting and uh, just staying connected uh, through, with you throughout the, the gap here. It's, it's also been clear that you, you know, you, you do bring a real considerate and thoughtful voice to that, to the ethics that, that do occur um, in and around the hunting sphere. Um, so we're going to, we're going to chat being, being a lefty hunter today and uh, what that means. And it, it doesn't mean that you, you're, you're shooting your bolt action from the, the left side, but uh, <laughs> um, what I'd love to hear from you first. Like, what do you, what do you think it means to be a lefty hunter? I know it's, it's kind of a loaded question, but mm-hmm. like, um, you know, what, what do, what's the common conception maybe, or like, what, do, what, what's the, what's that? the talk around a lefty hunter like what what's that all about yeah it is a loaded one um so i've i sort of framed it i sometimes frame it that i know i have voted for we're both in canada so you're, you're familiar with our political system here which differs from um states in the, in the sense that we're not a two-party country um mm-hmm. at both the sort of federal and then provincial and territorial levels we have multiple major parties and so I think that sets us up a bit differently uh, from this sort of binary capital L liberal capital C conservative approach. And, and I kind of relish that non-dichotomized political space. So in terms of politics, I sort of frame it that, you know, I, I don't consider myself a liberal, a capital L liberal. I, vote, I have voted for every of the major parties in Canada at some time or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So I, I, I sort of, I try to separate that industry of politics, the, the sort of the mess that is politics and the media and how they function in, in government from my, poli- my politics and the, the, the things that I bring to my everyday life, right? And so I, I sometimes, I'll just sort of describe it as, um, you know, everything I do and everything I'm involved in is, everything is political, but few things should be partisan. So in other words, everything should have a sense of sort of responsibility and and thinking about the ethics and the and the implicate and the social implications of what you're doing. But I don't draw many things along party lines. I, I there are a lot of things that are political and that need to be thought about on that kind of deep social political level that I, I think we have done a tremendous disservice to both ourselves and the issues by thinking of them as liberal or conservative party mm-hmm. issues. And so all that to say, I think, yeah, I mean, you're right. I think I, it's a, I enjoy thinking about hunting ethics. I find it interesting. I, it's what it's, a, and it's what makes, it's part of what makes hunting enjoyable to me. Um, we, we just talked about all the, the landscapes and the food and the different species and the seasons and everything. And that's of course what you do, but part of why I love hunting. And I've always said this is that it exercises every part of my existence you know it, it's emotional and it's intellectual and it's physical and it's and it's the food and it's the community or that you surround yourself with so as i've thought more and more about hunting ethics i have given myself the space to sort of say well if this is an important part of my life which it is how does it connect to every other part of my life all the other sort of d- daily ethics and morals and beliefs that i go about my life with and think about how to how i how i kind of function and behave in every other part of my life and thinking, not thinking about them as separate from hunting anymore. Um, and that is where I think it's 
has been a new challenge, a, sort of a, another new challenge for me in hunting, because I think in trying to really continually emphasize that hunting and conservation are no, are not, cannot be, and are not separate from all of the other social political issues we deal with in the world. Yeah. That gets tricky because it's, the, it does seem, it seems like they're separate. And if, if they're not, then the, then the challenge becomes, well, how do we articulate that? Well, what is the connection between those yeah. things? Yeah. I'll stop you there just because I, I do want to clarify, like we're, you're kind of drawing a, maybe not a line here, but you want to distinguish between maybe what is some of the political branding of the, you know, the big L liberal and the, the big C conservative um, when it comes to politics and what that means to be either on the left or on the right. Mm -hmm. And and maybe our, our lived ethics, if you would call it that, or like our, our practical experience with ethics and how we actually practice our beliefs out in, in the world. And uh, it, it's interesting to draw that distinction because I know when I have conversations with, with folks around either ethical and or political stuff, um, whether it be hunting or, or other things, um, a lot of times people don't want to be put in those, those boxes mm -hmm. of... Uh, they say, "Hey, I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not right or left. So I'm just uh, in the middle in some mm -hmm. way." Um, but then sometimes we put ourselves in camps too. I find like, cause it, or or we we certainly put others in camps because uh, I I think that's just human nature, right? The, we we want to classify things and and make them simple. When yeah. in reality, whenever we talk to someone about it, normally it's a little bit more complicated than. And it, uh, being on the left or on the right or something like that. Well, exactly. And and I, I mean, I've not yet found if there's if there's a if there's a political party that represents every single one of my beliefs and values and thoughts about life, I have not I've not yet found it. So that exactly that is why I I distinguish my like you say sort of lived values and and practiced values um, from the the organizations that the, the political organizations and party system. So yeah, I certainly my everyday, my sort of beliefs and values in a lived sense, very left leftist and left wing lefty. Um, and, but that's it. I think that like that, when we, when we frame the conversation that way around, what is the sort of package of values and beliefs that we have and that we bring into a conversation? I hope, and my, my hope with, with framing it that way, is that then we come into it with that sort of package of personal approaches to the conversation, to the issue. And we leave right. at the door, the rehearsed kind of party lines that, that political parties are, are they, they sell mottos and packages. They literally put together platforms. And, and I, and I'm less interested in that. It, I, I, I know what those are. I can go online and look those up. So when I have a conversation with someone or we deal with trying to deal with it, with a, with an important conservation issue, uh, I'm far more interested in, and I think it's, it's more useful and important to figure out what is the, the the kind of personalized package of values and beliefs and ethics that we bring to this. And let's figure out where those match up and where they don't and how we connect those to the issue. Yeah. It's interesting to frame it in the sense of a, like a personal package. Cause um, at least too, with my, my time with first nations communities too, they, they often say, at least the ones in Manitoba here will say, uh, you know, uh, you were going to speak from, from our own perspective and, and and from our own path and our own story, and it, and it's really hard. I find that at that point to come across as like an agreed individual for other for this mock political belief system that you you might take on in some ways, um, and it, it also grounds you in, in the conversation. I find a lot 
yeah. a lot firmer, right? Because you're you're not you're bringing your own perspective at this point in time. So there's there's almost an implied humility mm-hmm. built into into that sharing, right? It, it takes it down a notch. You're not representing uh, everyone in the hunting community, which could be a very defensive position at some point in time, imagine, well, right? Yeah, and you're engaging with that other person's humanity as well, not their not their not their symbol, not the not not the thing that they are a symbol of or that they are sort of rep- that you feel they're representing. It's easy to attack um this the kind of you know the this idea the ideas and the 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 sort of symbol that someone is if you present them that way. But that's right. I think I think it it makes it forces us to come into things with a bit more humility and to engage with that other person's humanity a bit. Um yeah so and that and i think that that's what we need to do and i and i think um i think that there are people on all sides of the political spectrum who recognize the importance of that this and this is that's not a that's not a left-wing statement that's not a that's not a leftist thing to say that you know i think we need to sort of to make sure that we're engaging people's humanity because that's wherever you are on the sort of spectrum of politics and the, the sort of it's like you say this sort of package of beliefs you bring You've got those, and so that's not a and I, and I and I also so this is where I sort of say I try to separate right the, the things being political from partisan. That um, I know that there are things that I say that are going to be more associated with left wing and leftist values, but there are other things that just because someone is right wing or is left wing, that that just because they say that thing does not make that thing right or left. And so suggesting that we need to to talk to each other and find figure out where those values are that's not a left-wing statement that's not a right-wing statement that's something that um i have found people on all sides of the spectrum thinking and so i, I kind of cling to that yeah so the, there's almost like a couple missions here in some ways or like maybe missions is the wrong way to phrase it but there's some work to be done um around just clarifying where we as hunters stand on certain things and and even just the on the ground reality, I would imagine of, of certain aspects, like for example, conservation efforts, it's probably real helpful to have accurate scientific data for us to make informed decisions um, around what, what a conservation effort should be put in place. I know in Manitoba here recently, I can think of like the chronic wasting disease response that the province has put out. And um, there's been some harsh, harsh criticism um, towards the province for the response and you know I'm not I'm not a scientist I'm not uh, ecologist by any stretch of the means um, but I don't envy those people in the in the position and the authority to, that have to make that decision because they kind of have to make one quickly and it was kind of uh, one of those best information at the moment kind of mm-hmm. uh, decisions but they, they line up calling a bunch of deer and elk in the, in the Western side of the province in a very aggressive way with helicopters mm-hmm. and like on private land a lot of the times. Um, so like it, it was quite a hot button issue, but it's interesting from an ethical perspective. Um, this is where the rubber meets the road in a lot of ways, right? Cause it, it looks at how we put our conservation into practice, but it also to me indicates conversations that we haven't had yet and mm. when we're being reactive in that moment right it would have been nice to be in a proactive position mm-hmm. where everyone was kind of informed of what would happen should there be this this outbreak of chronic wasting disease it would have been nice to have the funding to have the the full communications 
uh, spectrum. You know, again, another political decision. But like, it's it's interesting to see where the rubber really meets the road in some ways on on these issues. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's it's the wildlife that that pays for it. Obviously, right? So. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that the idea of sort of scientific information, um, which, as you know, I mean, in the in the history of conservation and as and the current sort of narrative in hunting is, hunters will really advocate for science based management, evidence based decision making, right? And that that the science is the proper is the, you know the proper tool for science for wildlife management, and um, and there's there is some unpacking to be done there. Uh, and I had a great conversation with. Uh, Chris Daramont, who's a professor in BC um, that many people will be familiar with um, from a few things that he's written around hunting. He's a hunter and he's, but he's a, he's an ecologist and conservationist. And, you know, he and I were chatting and he's, and I'll, I'll paraphrase him, but he says, you know, um, science does not tell you what to do, right? It does not tell you what we ought to do. That's a human decision. Science gives us uh, ideally a good basis to estimate what might happen if we take a certain course of action and to give us a picture of the situation that we want to act upon. But deciding what we want to do is a human decision. And so uh, I, this is something that I think that the hunting community and, and others, but, uh, but speaking sort of, you know, from my own perspective as part of the hunting community that we need to sort of, I think, get to that nuance a little bit that, Yes, we want to use science to make decisions about wildlife, but we need to remember that science does not tell us what to do. We, we choose to do certain, we choose to pursue certain scientific questions based on answers and questions that we want, or based on questions we want to find answers to. So those are what we ask and what types of science we do is a human decision. And we get that information that we decide what to do with it. And that's a human decision. Those are values. Those are value-based decisions. The decision to manage wildlife so that we have hunting opportunities is a social values decision. That's, that's an, and it's an emotional decision. I, I love hunting. I enjoy hunting. And so I would like to do things that allow me to continue to go hunting. So managing wildlife so that I can go hunting is an emotional decision. That's a, that's management still based on human emotions and human values. And I think that the hunting community has a difficult time with that sometimes because we value using science to make decisions. And we need to remember, and this is where I sort of say everything's political, everything, nothing is objective, um, that, that the science we have and we do with it is still wrapped up in our values and in, in human decisions and human beings. So that's where we need to figure out um, how we collectively as a society want to decide on things. Within the hunting community, there's great diversity and uh, and all sorts of different opinions about what we should do and we should not do. And then between the hunting community and the non-hunting community, there are differences and, and similarities. And so I think that that's, uh, it, it would be good for the hunting community to kind of sit down and unpack and get to the nuance a little bit around what we mean when we, when we talk about scientific information and, and how that is connected, like you say, how that's connected to um, the opinions that we hold politically and figuring out, um, yeah, we can criticize government and decisions while at the same time saying, this is the information we have. And those two things, while, while human values and politics have gone into to directing and informing and producing science, they're not always the same. And just because a government does something with a piece of scientific information that's available does not make that science inherently flawed or wrong or right. 
Uh, and that's, yeah. that's a challenge, I think. It's a real like reframe in some ways, I would imagine, because science has been, at least from my estimation, really used as a silver bullet in, in so many ways to, to say, hey, this is, this is the neutral um, mm -hmm. law of the land here. This is what we're going to make all our decisions off of and what you're identifying. And I think which we, we probably all have a sense of deep down somewhere is that where the actual decision gets made is, is in that, that really hard gritty work that, that leads up to um, the an analysis of that science and seeing where it fits into that, that ethical framework of ours of, hey, does, does this really support what our ethical goals are here, mm -hmm. whether, they, whether they be increasing hunter numbers, whether they be um, you know, making sure hunting's more widely available to, to a wide swath of people, these kind of things. Um, sometimes I, I hear the, the, the reframe that, uh, you know, we should leave the politics at the door or that we should, you know, not make this political, that we should just let the science um, govern it. But really what, what that seems to do is just really kind of let one political position go unsaid or that that's the, that's the, the assumption, right, that we're going to move forward with what the status quo is at that point in time. We're That's exactly it. When people say to leave the politics at the door, I, I think what they're what they're not necessarily intentionally saying, but what, what's what they're what is coming out is this acceptance that if we do that, if we don't have the political discussion and the debate, we will end up making a decision that I agree with. So few people will ever say let's leave the politics at the door when the inev when the, the outcome is leading towards something they disagree with. Yeah. Because yeah. Then, then they want the debate. And so I think that that's it, right? It's a, it's, I think that's what we need to get to is, is really drawing out the politics of it. Um, we can say, let's, let's, let's sort of all engage in this and leave the, um, this, the kind of preconceived ideas and notions as best we can at the door. Um, but we all bring, like we're saying, we all bring our own, our own biases and our own perspectives to it. And, um, to, to any to any issue and um I, I you know we we need to be more comfortable acknowledging that in the hunting community um and and realizing that there that, that there isn't one that's inherently better than the other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that the work kind of lies in parsing through a lot of those those uh maybe at times conf confrontational views mm -hmm. but like that that is the the work of kind of maybe making the best decision we can with what we know. Um, I want to ask though, because you've, you've identified that the hunting community is quite a diverse one, whether, <laughs> you know, whether it seems that way or not, like there's, there's a, there's a whole lot of diversity, not just people, but thought within the, mm -hmm. within the community. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've seen both yourself be quite, you know, I won't say critical, but you've, you've had some, some you know rather pointed kind of analysis of of you know certain aspects of of what how hunting represents itself will say and even even myself um you know i would throw myself under the lefty hunter moniker but you know like there's been times when i've been in in the hunting community something that i'm so passionate about something that i, I spend a lot of time engaging with um 
And I, I've definitely felt myself like if I was a peacock, <laughs> the, <laughs> the tail feathers shrunk a little. And, you know, sometimes it's just I make a call where it's like it's it's easier maybe for, for me not to just make a, a big thing about something at this point in time. But I can feel my my politics start to like be, be um, there's that feeling when it feels like, OK, like maybe maybe I'm the odd duck out in the in the room mm-hmm. here at this point in time. Is is there some like um like this is a long way of asking like do you think there's some like dominant strains of thought that that are kind of run through the the hunting community or am I just kind of like on my own on this one here? Yeah, you're not on your own. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not on your own. I mean, I got into, and I've written about this. I grew up being in, involved in the sort of uh, activist and punk rock community. That's why it's in my blood. To, yeah yeah to dissent and to be to, to be critical and and so this idea that um that left leftists are um or, or anybody on the, any side of the spectrum are, are but that but again for myself that that i'm somehow just on board with liberal governments left-wing governments i'm sort of like i mean i doubt that i grew up um subsisting that was what fueled me was was sort of pushing back against governments and, and things so um that couldn't yeah, that's that's always been how I came into hunting. I I saw, and part of what drew me to hunting was, um, the that hunters and the conservation world and the history of conservation has always been a story of activism and dissent and um, sort of challenging norms and being critical about about government policy, about economic policy, and about social conventions. And that was where I found my niche in the conservation world and, and in the hunting world was really attaching myself to things to sort of, well, I, I'm bringing this kind of sense of activism and the sense of um, being socially and politically uh, contentious at times, but, but critical. And what kind of, where is that in the hunt in the conservation world? Then, and then I came to find that that's what, that's the story of conservation um, is people pushing back against things that was an uphill battle. And at somewhere somewhere along the line, and I hesitate to uh, name any kind of you know sort of um, subcultures in, in in Western in North America that would have done this, but it's somewhere along the line, hunting and conservation sort of became associated with more conservative and perhaps more right leaning um, groups and culture subcultures and communities, and you know, and I think we see that sometimes mobilized whether that's around issues around predators or areas of the country, you know, West and East or the continent, even West and Eastern parts of the continent and, and people sort of identifying sometimes for deliberate uh, sort of capital P political goals, associating hunting and conservation with conservative, uh, you know, and everything that goes with that. And again, I, I give the caveat that this will, this list will never be complete or encapsulate everybody, but associated with conservative rural right-leaning um kind of groups and and values and this is one of those things where i said you know there can be many right-leaning or left-leaning people that are involved in conservation and hunting and it doesn't inherently make conservation and hunting a right or left idea and activity right the idea that we go out and um and spend time outside and, and find an animal and shoot an animal and eat that animal that isn't anything inherently right or left wing I, um, that's something that has existed certainly not before 
human disagreements and in fighting, but definitely before we had concepts of political spectrums in the way that we do now. So I think of it on that level, that um, that we are in a place right now where, as with everything else that we talk about and encounter in social life and political life, yes, hunting and conservation uh, has come to be associated, I think, with, uh, and, and, I, and I know this from other people outside of that community that I speak to, who see it as being sort of connected with and associated with more conservative and right-leaning values, which means that someone who comes into it from my perspective and background as a sort of left-leaning person, um, find myself at odds with the narrative that it is that I that it is that hunting and conservation are somehow incompatible with my or or not representative of my um, social and political values. And I would challenge that that is a recent idea and recent thing around hunting and conservation, but that does not reflect the story of of conservation and hunting historically. And the people who have been extremely, um, who have been movers in the history of conservation and hunting and who have, who have um, brought it to where we are now. Yeah. It's kind of this odd space to occupy if, if I can editorialize for, for just Please. a moment in the sense that like, um, if you, when you, when you do say something that runs contra to what maybe might be the, what is perceived as like a very dominant thought, um, like myself, I'll use the, the, gun regulations in, in Canada specifically, because that's, that's what I'm familiar with. But, um, you know, I, I've expressed before that, you know, like I, I'm not opposed to, to reasonable regulations for, for firearms in Canada. And that does get some folks really riled up, I'll, I'll admit, but um, um, it's not because like, I, I want to see people restricted on, you know, it gets it gets typecast as the law-abiding citizen versus a criminal. Again, another thing that I think maybe isn't as nuanced as it, as it needs to be. Um, but I don't. I want to see folks like limited in in what their their hunting activities are per se. But I I I, vo I vocalize it because I I do worry that if we get too wrapped up in it, that it's going to lead us down. It's going to be distraction for us as, as hunters here as to, to things that are maybe what I would perceive very crucial for, for our future, things like uh, environmental stewardship, access to land, things like this, right? Um, and also, like, for me, it's the, the public perception around hunting, too, is like, okay, are we going to be responsible firearm owners? Then we actually have to be responsible firearm owners. There, there's responsibilities that come with owning a firearm. Um, so for me to say these things, again, it's, it's, <laughs> it puts me out into like a little bit of discomfort, but I, I do it because like, I, I really do care about the future of like where we're headed as, as a hunting community. And like, to me, maybe some, some of the biggest disservice I could do is to just kind of nod my head along sometimes to, to some of that and say, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe everyone else just has it right. And I'm, I'm just a, a lefty loon here on the, uh on the spectrum um but does, does that resonate with you at all like is it the weird paradox that you kind of like uh sit up sit with when you're when you're trying to like vocalize something that that's maybe not uh you know you know you might catch a little flack for let's just put it that way all the time um yeah i we i mean the, the sort of the responsible i'm using air quotes for everyone listening here my air quotes up a responsible gun owner idea uh, it, to me, I, I think but that it, that doesn't just mean physically responsible. I mean, certainly it starts with responsible in the sense of not hurting anybody, mm -hmm. but 
I think when I think about responsible gun owner, I think about, well, socially responsible as well. It means representing the firearms community well to the public, to the non-shooting public. And let me pause here. If someone says, someone's listening here or someone comes into the conversation and says, I, but I don't care. I don't care what the non-hunting public thinks or the non-shooting public thinks. Then let's have that conversation. That's a separate conversation to have. And I'm I'm all in. I'm starting from the place that we accept for a moment. It does matter what they think, if only because they vote. Now, mm-hmm. I think it matters more than for more reasons than that. Because well, we, you, you, we you share live next door to them, probably. That's and... right. We share a community. We live next door to people. If we talk about a hunting community, we're we're saying we value the idea of community, which means that that we're recognizing the importance of the importance of community and the need to be responsible for our neighbors. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm starting from that place that we're acknowledging that for various reasons and whatever you, wherever you find this, it does matter what the non-hunting and, and even the anti-hunting and the non-shooting and even the anti-firearms community thinks. If someone says, but I don't care and I don't want to have to, let's, let's have that conversation another time. Okay. So <laughs> coming back to on point here it does resonate because i think when we talk about responsible firearms user it's also thinking about socially responsible firearms user which means we do have to think about what does it mean to live in a community and with all of the social context that we live in which means that things that are happening in the happening in, in the news and things that are happening in the world around firearms that has to come into the conversation i will still advocate for my ability to to use a firearm to go to the range and to go hunting and to, for sports shooting and everything. But I'll do so in a contextual, socially contextually specific way. My, what I say this year to advocate for what it means to be a responsible fire, safe and socially responsible firearms user might be different from what I, the way I frame it next year, because mm-hmm. it, the, the context may have changed the, pol- the political context and the social context, people's concerns, people's interests. The, and so though, as those shift, we our narratives need to shift as well and that is a that's some of my concern is that if we continue if we sort of stay locked in the same narratives around around firearms around uh, one of the other ones i get into a lot with folks is predator management and sort of feelings about predators around uh issues and concerns around sexism and racism in hunting around um and when i talk about predators i mean both I get I get hunters and non-hunters disagreeing with what I think about predator hunting, and so I find myself in a real fun place there where <laughs> no one likes me. But yeah, these these my approach to it will change depending on the year and depending on the person I talk to and where they come from. And I think that that's something that um, we need to be comfortable with as as hunters and as shooters and as anglers and trappers and whatever you know all the, the entire wider community that we're part of, um, because I. Yeah, I, every time I kind of bring that up, it's um, I'm at odds with well, with somebody, and it's often with the hunting community because I'm sort of say, that will say, well, hold on, let's let's pick that apart a little bit, and and I'm and I'm not not kind of comfortable just sort of being in the sitting in the same sort of repetitive narrative. Um, I don't know. Does that does that get at what you were what you were talking yeah, about? <laughs> yeah, like yeah, and just being being a little bit more comfortable with with the gray and, and willing to sit in that a little bit longer if it means that we're going to come out with maybe a, a little bit better understanding of what our next steps need to be or you know a common path forward mm-hmm. um and, and it, it kind of makes me want to ask you we, we've kind of touched on it already with the the leaving your politics at the door concept but 
like you, like you're, well, you and I both are, are not believers in like this, um, this concept where you can kind of check your, your politics at the door in a lot of ways, right? They're, they're kind of always with you mm-hmm. in, in one way or the other. Um, but again, we're speaking from the, the concept of um, you bringing your, your personal ethics and your, your, your worldview to decision-making that you're making regarding hunting, conservation, and all these different things. Can you want to kind of speak how you kind of frame that with like how, how is it, why is it impossible for us to kind of check our political baggage at the door? Why, why is that just like, that's a cliche to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, maybe I'll preface it with like, maybe some folks are using it in the sense of, hey, let's, let's leave the real like inflammatory stuff off the table right now. Let's, let's not talk about, um, you know, stuff that we know is going to put fire on the gasoline. Let, maybe let's, let's talk about uh, something where we might have a little bit more common ground that, that, that I can get a sense of, but like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's used other ways. So like what, how is it? So why is politics so integrated with us? Like, how can we not check that bag? Yeah. And I agree with you in the way that you're accepting it and believing it, that we leave the name calling at the door and we leave the, the, the sort of recitation of party lines at the door. Absolutely. Um, I, and that's why I sort of opened the conversation with I, I don't consider myself a sort of big L liberal or, or, or a big C conservative. I, and that, that's not when I, how I come into conversations. And I so, yes, that part of things, leaving that kind of um, prefabricated ideas and lines and name calling and, and sort of um, the, the, uh, the assumption that we are already at odds. Leave that at the door. Yes. Where we can't. What we can't leave at the door is everything we're bringing as a person into the conversation. This is how decisions are made. We sort of we sort of debate and, and unpack the the nuance of these things. And um, there's we have constructed so to get a little bit sort of um, in in depth with it a little bit here because this is what I this is my background professionally. It's, we have constructed and come up with a, a way of doing science and a way of coming up with knowledge through a very created means. And so in people in universities hundreds of years ago sat down and said, you know, what is the method to come up to, to do science? Well, they were rooted in a particular cultural approach to knowledge and a particular way of understanding the world informed by their culture, their religion, their political system and everything. So the way that we do science itself is tied to social and political and cultural context. It didn't spring out of the ground next to, next to, to the tree. Okay. It, it, we, people came up with it. We, we wrote that, mm-hmm. we made that up. And so I'm, we can say the way that we do science and the piece of information we have about a species or about an ecosystem is, is valid and is important to make, to, to use and to inform our decision-making. Absolutely. But it's not value-free. It's not it, that how we came to know that was, is rooted in a, in a whole cultural tradition of understanding the world. And if we accept that uh, and, and I haven't talked to anyone who hasn't accepted that yet, but if we accept that and, and, and as it's contrasted with, for example, indigenous knowledge systems and many other ways of knowing the world, then it's okay. And I'm not saying you have to as a heavy-handed, you, you must, but I'm saying it's okay then to accept and to acknowledge that what we come to know about the world, everything from you know, what the moose does and describing moose behavior to how human systems work is really based on a certain set of cultural values. And that shifts based on, on depending on how culture shifts and society shifts. So 
we can't check our our politics and our ethics at the door because we've come to see the world and interact with the world through a particular lens and set of experiences. The things that I think about conservation and the reasons that I value wildlife and nature and wild places and and, and the, the things that I do and why I'm involved in hunting is informed by all my experiences, my beliefs and my and and my values, just as yours are and anyone else's are. And it would be a disservice to the depth and the importance of hunting and conservation or any debate to, to say that we're not going to bring those into the conversation because it's an important topic. It's an, hunting is important and conservation is deep. And so, and has always been defined by people. Um, conservation has always been the, 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 rather the decisions we make about conservation and hunting and wildlife have always been informed by social values and human values. People nowadays will say, we'll talk about wolf reintroductions to use a bit of a controversial topic as being it's only informed by people who love wolves or hate wolves well all wolf management in the history of modern wolf management in north america has been informed by social values when at the time when everyone wanted to exterminate wolves and there were go- there's government funding and policies to exterminate wolves that was driven by economic interests and social and political interests to very to various things to settle the west to clear land for food production to um sort of make way for uh, a, a certain way that humans wanted to interact with the landscape landscape which was to sort of dominate the landscape and to clear the land of predators that would impact our economic interests so those are all social decisions those are all human value decisions and so bringing sort of re- the, the, the current debate around reintroducing or or, or um, bringing wolves back to certain areas of the landscape absolutely those are social decisions and social value decisions as they always have been and I think that that we need to sort of come to terms with that and very importantly that not demonize that not to present these this decision making as wrong because it has human values and politics involved um and I think that's where we get ourselves into trouble as we say well the, we we present the, the the ultimate goal as making decisions that are free from human politics and values and First of all, we're never going to get there. We've never been there. We're never going to get there. But secondly, we need to sort of think about, well, why do we want, why is that the norm? Um, and is that really the norm? I, I don't want to come on, come into a conversation around wildlife and conservation where I'm not allowed to express how much I love hunting and my desire to be able to go hunting. Uh, and so I can't very well, to be consistent and, and logical, I can't very well ask the other person to do that, to leave their values and politics at the door. When I'm saying, well, I'm going to come into the room advocating for hunting opportunities. Um, and so we need to be consistent with that and recognize that we're all sort of bringing those, those backgrounds and perspectives. And I, and I, it's, I don't think it's realistic for us to think that humans ever have and that we can and that we even should leave that part of ourselves, those like sort of lower P politics at the door, because that's what makes these conversations rich. And that's what gives us the basis for decision-making. So it's, it's a bit embarrassing, but I just had like a, a mini epiphany kind of in, in conversation with you here, um, thinking about, you know, the, the role that hunting has played historically and culturally for humans, um, just how important it is. Um, I, I know a big aha moment for me previously was that, you know, when I was thinking, well, is hunting ethical? Should I really kill something if I could be eating bean salad, all this kind of stuff? And I, the epiphany for me at that point was, well, we've already 
altered the landscape, the world so dramatically, like to, to think that I'm somehow um, uh, not of this world or like of a different, you know, somehow like above or aside from it, like that's, that's just foolhardy thinking at that point in time. Um, but now it's got me thinking too, that, you know, like hunting might be one of the most, the act itself might be one of the most political expressions that you can, you can put out there, right? Like you, you are going out and you are interacting with the, the, the natural world. I'm using the air, your air quotes there, but, um, you know, you're harvesting a resource and you're, you're participating in one of the, the oldest cultural artifacts of human uh, history is to, to go out there and to harvest. Um, so even just by engaging in it, you're, you're making a, a, a political statement in and of itself, right? You're, you're recreating some of the politics even that, you know, mm -hmm. might have been present uh, in those tribal days or whatever you want to frame them as, mm -hmm. right? So like the to think that we can again check that baggage at the door um, might be a, uh, you know, we might be doing ourselves a disservice, as you've kind of alluded to here, and how we can meaningfully engage with both our own politics and with the the reality that hunting is mm -hmm. for us as humans. Exactly, and it, it, at this point, advocating for hunting opportunities and, and conservation is a that is a political action because um, we, we need to make decisions about funding and about policies and programs and, and all sorts and laws and regulations that enable us to continue hunting. And so we are making political actions. We are making political decisions. Um, you know, it's, it's not just a, we're not in that time where we, where we're hunting absent of political systems and social contexts. Everything we do around hunting is embedded in the current social political context. And so to kind of come back full circle a little bit, I go, well, if that's the case, which which we know it is, I mean, look in the last year, I mean, I've been involved in um, in political advocacy around hunting all over the con North America and Canada, from from black bears in California through to, you know, issues in the Yukon and, and all over the place. So everything that we want to do to maintain hunting opportunities, and if there are folks listening to this who disagree with hunting that everything that you that you're engaged in to uh curtail certain hunting opportunities those are all political actions rightfully so and i'm very proud to be involved in political active activism and advocacy around hunting and so what that also means then is that if hunting is therefore like you say a political action and statement then it can't be separate from everything else that, that that's going on in the world everything around power dynamics in society and, and systemic issues and structural issues in the world. And so we can't, we can't separate those things. If we want to talk about the history of conservation and, and the, the, the sort of mm -hmm. political decisions that we, that have been made and the, 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 um, the way, things that we celebrate about conservation, then buckle in, we have to buckle in to be able to say, well, those, those um, accomplishments were also made in the context of wider social political systems. And, you know, people will, talk about Theodore Roosevelt as being the, and I think you and I have talked about this before, as being the sort of this kind of godfather of conservation, right? And mm -hmm. um, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt was a, was a um, racist, was a raging racist. I mean, he, he made all kinds of, um, of horrible statements about indigenous peoples in North America. William Hornaday, who people will talk about as being critical to the prevention of buffalo, bison extinction in North America, um, was, you know, again, held deeply racist values the history of bird conservation in North America and um, how 
organizations such as the Audubon Society to, to, to take a non-hunting organization to sort of task here um, were rife with sexism and creating situations where women were, were not welcome and not their perspectives were not really welcome. Yet we wouldn't have bird conservation and the kinds of robust waterfowl and, and bird species we have in North America if it weren't for feminist conservationists. It's not mm. a, you know, sure, it's a left-wing statement because feminism is largely associated with left of political, left of center sort of political beliefs. So sure, but the history of that, of, of conservation is one where we have feminists, conservationists speaking up against uh, issues and policies and practices that would have led to the extinction of bird species and waterfowl in this continent if they hadn't spoken up. So all this to say that conservation and, and hunting is always wrapped up in politics and it always has been. And, and so we need to we need to be able to, if we're going to engage in sort of the political world around hunting and conservation, which we need to, we have to bring in and open up or open ourselves up to be able to think about and talk about and acknowledge all of the other social political issues that that also kind of frame and encapsulate the hunting and conservation world, everything from everything around around racism and sexist issues in the world, and 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 that's this is where I get in. This is where my sort of uh, being a lefty hunter gets me, puts me sort of at odds at odds. I think at times, so it, it puts you out there in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're definitely, or as much as like um, we're, we've talked about. Um, trying to come to the, the table with just your own perspective at some point that necessitates that you share your perspective and that that might mean that we're putting forward values that you know as we've stated with the maybe with some of the firearm regulations that run uh, a little differently than than what you know might be popular at some point in time um, it, it it's got me thinking too like I was trying to Google this quote before I came into the meeting with you here today, but um, I can't remember who who I stole it off of. But um, the, the quote essentially goes, I'm paraphrasing here, is that um, the first thing to go out the window in, in social stripe is conservation. And it really, um, it, that was a, another aha moment for me too, that really tied things together. It was like, of course, we have to worry about things like food security and uh, you know, people's ability to to have housing and, and things like this. Um, we have to have, you know, a kind and caring society because people aren't going to make great decisions if they're constantly under stress. It's hard to be a good citizen when you don't know where your, your next meal is going to come from. So, like, I, I don't know if that's a really, like, selfish way of framing social care um, in the community, but it's also, like, recognizing the reality that, you know, um, shit i hate to use africa as an example but it always irks me a little when folks are like um you know hunt, hunting's leading conservation in africa and that that might be true a lot of cases but it always it always makes me ask the question like why are things so askew in africa in the first place like why why are there you know why why are the game wardens there having to go around with ak-47s to defend the rhinos um, how did things get to that point in time? And it, it, to me, it, it always seems to lead back that there's some sort of like social, we, we as hunters maybe weren't always standing in solidarity with folks that needed, um, you know, a little bit of voice and agency at a point in time to, uh, to, uh, to protect their lands. Because I think about the flip side of the coin, if, if I had to, if we, 
I mean, we, we get it a little here in Canada with um, foreign folks coming to, to use our resources, which is fine. I think we can do it in a sustainable way right now. But if, if our whole livelihood and community was completely dependent on, uh, you know, two or three people coming in and, and harvesting, you know, the biggest moose in Manitoba, um, I, I might feel a little differently about my connection to hunting and, and how I exercise that, that autonomy or right. You know what I'm saying there, Paul? Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and that's exactly it. I, and that's, I think you've just sort of captured when I'm probably said in a f- much more rambling and long-winded way uh, is that, yeah, exactly. That um, it, it, our, our feelings, our values, our perspectives are tied to, our, and, and our sort of our, the, the personal experiences that inform those values are are also tied to the and in the social context that we live in the bigger societal and community context we live in right and if that changes then perhaps so would our our values and our perspectives because our experiences change um so yeah i i agree and it's it you know some of what you were sharing too also had me it was very clear that uh when we're looking i i wouldn't want to downplay i don't want to say downplay is even the wrong word but like it we have to recognize that someone like theodore theodore roosevelt roosevelt made extraordinary contributions to the the field of conservation absolutely um and that the, there was likely some very uh unhelpful things this might be a soft way of, of putting <laughs> uh some of the other words that came out of his mouth um mm-hmm. but you know part of there's two things I think that come to, to looking at that history. One is to take an honest look at it and, and say, you know, what was good here? What was bad? Um, mm-hmm. And what do we want to carry forward? And what do we, uh, you know, maybe want to move away from? The, the other question, though, I think that helps you do some of that digging work is to ask, um, and you, you hinted at this, but the, the whose history is it? Yeah. Um, when, you, when, when you think of, like, who, who has a place in these stories, in these myths that we build as a hunting community, as as these these legends, um, and why is there people missing? And if so, why? Right? Um, you were sharing a few few of your inspirations, and they. Uh, I'll be honest; I had to Google one or two of them um, just because I wasn't familiar with their work. Um, but quite clearly, they were conservation heroes in in their own right. Um, do you want to like maybe share a little bit about where you're drawing inspiration from and how that loops into like kind of your, your larger framework here? Yeah. And I, I'll first say that I, you nailed it with the sort of uh, whose story is told in history. And, and um, I, I think I, I, and I encourage people to not get, not sort of be defensive in this statement that the, the stories that we hear from history um, are, are not all of the stories. They are, they are some of the stories and the histories that we hear and the people we hear about, um, those come out of deliberate sort of systems that elevate certain voices and stories over others. And we cannot possibly, no one can possibly think that the people in the stories that we, we know of, that we hear sort of commonly, that those are all of them. And if again, if we sort of accept that, if that's if if it's not an outrageous proposition to say that there there was much more going on in the history of the world, in the history of just conservation, than the people in the particular stories that we hear about a lot, the question is why those ones then, and and what others, what ones have we not hear, heard about, and what constructs and what sort of forces and systems construct and frame the way that narratives are told? Why do we hear about Roosevelt 
and Hornaday and Grinnell and John Muir and, and all of those figures. Um, and why do we perhaps think, uh, because they weren't all hunters, John Muir and, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, Thoreau, they're not all hunters, but we, we hear about their stories. Why do we perhaps not as often hear about folks like Rachel Carson? Certainly in the environmental movement, they do. And Rachel Carson wrote, uh, many people will be probably familiar with Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. And she published in the 60s. That she worked very hard to get published and sort of drew the world's attention to the issue of uh, contaminants and in particular DDT uh, and its impact on, on wildlife. Wow. And it was a battle for her to get that published. And, um, you know, it's now credited with really ringing the bell on uh, the start to the environmental movement in the 60s. We may not hear as much about Winona LaDuke, who's a um, Anishinaabe activist who, who really talks and writes and, and is, a, is really involved in um, issues around contaminate, environmental contamination and development on Indigenous territories. And the the how most often it, it ends up being in North America that um, the areas that are that are impacted by development and contaminated by development and, and pollutants end up being indigenous communities. Uh, and people may not hear as much about uh, the other example I give is Rosalie Edge, who in 1929 went to the went to an Audubon Society meeting and stood up and challenged their what she perceived as their stance around um, overhunting birds and allowing and not sort of speaking up against overhunting of birds. And so inevitably she found herself at odds with both the hunting community and then the kind of non-hunting conservation community in the Audubon society um, because she was an outspoken woman in 1929. And she went on to really draw attention to issues around um, bird population depletion. So I, I don't know, maybe everyone hearing this knows all of these figures and 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 um and i should have known them sooner but but i'll, I'll tell you that I, it's when i look up and when i hear commonly in the hunting narratives in the hunting world those aren't three of the names that come up um you know and so yeah those are some people that i frequently draw inspiration from um and 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 why i think that we need to really sort of dig into what is the history of conservation and again it is to me it is one of People pushing back against uh, and questioning what are what were at the time very accepted social norms and political uh, um, systems and and policies, and um, I mean Winona LaDuke is still very active. Um, Rachel Carson and Rosalie Edge are historical figures, but um, I, you know, and those again, like you as you said so well, uh, whose kind of stories are not being elevated and why. I don't think you're so daft as to randomly selected these three, um, but I also don't think you're you're a sadist in the sense that you know you you're, you're doing this just to ruffle feathers and and stir a pot. I I, I know you're not uh, not that disingenuous of a of a fellow there, Paul. Um, so I guess what I'm what I'm wondering then is um, you must you must really believe that by us taking a deeper look at some of these stories by us really hunkering down and engaging with some of some of either the history or the, the ongoing work here that's being shared by some of these leaders that the that we can really either spread our wings or um, um, become a lot more cooler as a community when it comes to hunting fishing conservation as a as a whole like to, 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 like 
would you say that's kind of your angles to like really strengthen? Cause I mean, that's, that's what I get. That's what I feel when I, when I hear you talk about it, but I could see too, like, I know other people might not be as eager to, to really um, welcome, you know, someone who vocally advocated against something like a, a pesticide, right. You know, that mm-hmm. you might, you might be a bit of a hippie if you, <laughs> if you did that, but there's, there seems to be a real, common ground there that we need to engage with and seriously think about right yeah yeah and and you know i'll say you are an incredible listener okay i'll give you i'll tell you that no i and i you're and this is one this is why i enjoy talking with you because um you you have a you have a rare ability to to do that to sort of take what someone has said and say well let me okay now let me hold a mirror to that a little bit and so i appreciate that because i yes I do believe that. I think um, that's where we're coming from. That's where I'm coming from. How, how do we make how do we make conservation more successful, more representative, more inclusive, and, and which ultimately those things make it more successful. Um, mm-hmm. And but I but those are also criteria that makes it make it successful to me. Is creating a conservation world and a hunting community and a hunting world that has people involved and makes people care about the thing they're doing and want to protect and to preserve and to advocate for hunting. And I, it, yes, more hunting opportunities, more wildlife on the landscape, those are criteria for success to me. But also it's um, people loving it and people being involved in it and caring about it and understanding it. And that means that we have to make, we have to, to bring people in and we have to bring, we have to make it a safe place. And I mean that in the very, and in, in, in the, a very literal sense of the word, not this kind of, and I will give it that, not this sort of lefty uh, perspective on it, but literally safe. It needs, it needs to be a place that is open to people's perspectives and identities and values and, and, and what they bring to it and bring people in. That needs to be a criteria for success for us in the hunting and conservation world, because that's what's going to allow us to really be successful in protecting wildlife and preserving landscapes and maintaining hunting and enhancing hunting opportunities. So, yeah, and in short answer to your question, that's absolutely the motivation. It's because I, I think that doing this will get to us to a, and, and thinking about things this way and, and from this kind of broader sense and, and more inclusive sense will get us to a point where we have a better sort of reality and future around for hunting and conservation um, in, any, in any way that we want to measure success in those things. And I think we have an obligation too to like as hunters, as people who, just like, just like when you go and ask a landowner to to use their property, and you have you're being an ambassador there for, for hunting, and you know you better not leave your goddamn shotgun shells on on the land. Um, the same as kind of like when we're out in community and engaging with folks who maybe aren't hunters, or maybe um, maybe they're canoers, maybe they're they're mushroom pickers, maybe they're mm-hmm. you know they're they're in parallel spaces to us. I think we have that same obligation to to show that that we can be that inclusive space as well too. It, it, like we we that we're able to to keep up with the context that you've kind of uh, laid out. Um, Not leave our social shotgun shells all over the net ground. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Pick up those social shotgun shells. Yeah. Um, and I I don't want to to hunker on the, the, the safe space kind of air quote thing, but like I've also been in scenarios um, very infrequently, I'll admit, but like where I know 
me being a hunter has been like a not popular idea mm-hmm. as well. And let me tell you, like my level of engagement in those, com- like, I, I just don't share that I'm a hunter at that point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not worth it for me, unless I really think the person's going to listen to me. Like, I'm not going to go in there and try and change minds if they're, if they've got their mind made up already. And so I think the converse is true for us when we're, when we're engaging with folks who maybe don't fully understand what we're doing, we got to look, we got to, you talk about a mirror, we got to hold the mirror up once in a while, I think, and take a real hard look and say, Hey, am I putting something out there that someone is going to like actually want to learn from and like have a conversation with, or do I have Mm my up already? And do I, am I putting out that energy where, um, Mm -hmm. you know, folks aren't going to be able to have a conversation with me because I'm my, my heels are so dug in that, uh, you know, that I I could be looking the other way at that point in time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think like that comes down to right back where we started is sort of coming into things with a bit of humility and recognizing that at the end of the day, it's that person's humanity that we need to engage with. Not, not, not a series of sort of political mottos and slogans. We need Mm -hmm. to figure out what is that person saying and listen to that um and 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 respond to that and not come into you know there's that there's that phrase um you come into a conversation it's sort of well hurry up and stop talking so i can tell you mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. when i forget how it goes but um it, you know you're waiting for the person to stop talking so you can talk right rather than res- listening and then responding to the person and i think that that's that's really an important part of it like uh, you know um yeah let's figure out where we where we all kind of where we meet um on things and 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 how we can strengthen our own perspectives and our own understandings of things from what other people are bringing to it you know um yeah i want to get too blue sky here but like thinking about the conversations that you have been having like you don't shy away from it so like i'll uh i'll give you points for that um what like what are you hopeful for here what are you kind of like where you where are you getting traction because i i do believe like Again, I don't think you're foolhardy enough to do something that is just going to be an utter failure. So, like, what, it, where, where are you, where are you seeing success here, and like, what, uh, what are you holding hope for? Because I think I have a, a kind of a, a glint at your, your vision here, but uh, you know, just to get a peek behind the curtain would be a real treat. I think. It, you know, yeah, it changes, and I and I let it change daily. Sometimes. Um, Honestly, sometimes it's it's just to to not get into a big argument with someone about the issues, and maybe that's the best we we do that day. And yeah. other times, um, it's you know if I can, I sort of see myself. I, like I say I kind of am, I, I kind of put myself and try to be comfortable in that area, that big kind of messy complex area in between different communities, and. And it sometimes it's sort of reaching across that aisle a little bit into the hunting community. And sometimes it's kind of reaching across that aisle into the non or, or further into the anti-hunting community and um, creating some connections there. Um, and I, I think that if we write a perspective off, we, that, that as, as some, as, you know, um, an entire group of people that we're not going to engage with because they hold that particular perspective then that's a decision that we make and we, we turn, we, we completely close that door. And so I really push back against the idea that, and then, so the answer to your question on what I, what I hope for is to kind of push back against that, that kind of gatekeeper mentality and, and to really 
sort of um, see in the in the moment what it is, who it is that we're that we're trying to kind of connect with and and pull pull into our into our community a little bit, um, and and again sometimes that's sometimes that's connecting with uh, a, a group of hunters or a part of the hunting community that um, I might have a difficult time connecting with because we are sort of more right wing or left wing, and sometimes that's connecting with a group of non hunters because they have a particular perspective on hunting that um, that I think that I can that I can change or that I can add some some context to that in a that will make them think more positively about hunting. Um, and other times, it, I think it's there are pressing and very important and urgent conservation issues. We are we are in a biodiversity crisis in the world, and it's we just need to take action on that sometimes. And so it's about I think getting people on board with that and just sort of mobilizing action on that and um and finding ways that people can do it if you're a hunter here's a way you can take action if you're a non-hunter here's a way you can take action because then we can then we can deal with as i say then we can deal with the decisions and the the the, the, the ways that we want to make human decisions on how we manage wildlife but we need wildlife to do that right, right. um and so on a more urgent kind of everyday practical way it's it's we need people involved in the in in addressing environmental issues and biodiversity concerns um anyway so those are a few i think a few of the things that i yeah, that i yeah. that i hope for um and i and i will shift between them depending on where my energy is for that day and honestly where my emotional and intellectual energy is and who i'm with and i and i i let myself do that i was i used to be you know back in my younger days it was it was all about idealism right no this is this is the value that i'm going to just sort of scream at everyone and now i let myself sort of shift in that depending on um what I think is going to be most successful in that moment. And if that's not, <laughs> that's not shouting one side, one perspective, then I'll, then I'll take a different tack, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's this uh, real practical opportunity for us to, to engage across groups. Um, and it, it has me thinking too, like sometimes we champion ourselves as like the key conservationists and, in human history and mm -hmm. uh, maybe sometimes that hubris hurts us a little in mm -hmm. the sense of like are we not partnering to the depth that we, we need to be partnering to, to address some of these um really complicated um environmental you, you said a uh, diversity crisis mm -hmm. for example like i mean that to me screams cooperation or partnership uh you know, we need to get the kind of all hands on deck for that kind of situation we we do and you know what wherever anyone wants to look in history, um, you know, if, if Roos, if the Roosevelt's and Leopold and John Muir's are the people you look to for inspiration, well, Roosevelt and Muir worked together. They disagreed deeply on hunting and they worked together to protect landscapes and areas for, for people, people to use. So as I say, the history of conservation is one of dissent and activism. It's also one of cooperation. It's also one of, um, of collaborative action across aisles so to speak social so you know the, the sort of social mm -hmm. communities and political aisles so it's there and um maybe as a as a shorter answer to your previous question that's what i hope to get it i hope i i want us to to be able to be comfortable and not and not feel so threatened unpacking some of these narratives and mm -hmm. these kind of myths that we that we feel comfort in and to, to just to sort of be, be okay with um questioning those a little bit and not uh and not feeling so threatened by that yeah, and I, I wonder if that's where maybe we answered our paradox question too, with the uh, you know existing in the this discomfort of, of uh, 
unpacking because the, the unpacking can be real uncomfortable work sometimes. And, you know, um, asking those maybe sometimes unsaid questions out loud can be really uncomfortable. And we kind of sit in this paradox, but maybe it's not a paradox at all. It's, it's, it's the fact that we are deeply, I, at least I feel deeply invested in, in hunting and the tradition of hunting and what it means for community. Um, and it's that very reason that we ask these, you know, what might be silly questions on the surface, but it, they're actually really in, intrinsic or deep questions to me, at least when I think of them and really important for, hey, where the heck are we going in the next two weeks? Where are we going in the next two years? Where are we going in the next 20 years kind of scenario, right? So maybe it's not a paradox at all is what I'm trying to say. Maybe not, and maybe it's more just that we need to pause to think about it collectively long enough to realize it's not sometimes. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Again, we sort of take take things for granted, and when we stop to to question them a bit, we realize this uh, is maybe not a paradox, and maybe hopefully this uh, this wild left just lefty is not is not so out to lunch. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it might just be that I just need to get over myself and stop being uncomfortable in certain situations too, uh, and just uh, just say the thing that needs to be said sometimes if I think it's actually going to be helpful. That is right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Paul, I think I think we covered a lot of ground today. I don't know if we came up with any solutions, but uh, I don't. I never think that that was the intent of the conversation today, anyways. So, um, but I, I do uh, appreciate not just uh, you know what you offer online, but uh, the fact that you make time to to have these conversations and uh, that uh, you're, you're willing to kind of not just put yourself out there, but uh, you know be quite courageous. I would say in the sense of you know advocating for something that is presumably bigger than yourself in a lot of ways right so thanks for coming on today thanks for sharing a little bit about yourself and sharing a little bit about your your hopes and dreams for the for the, for the hunting community right it's it, it, it i can't say everyone but i don't think no i appreciate it thank you i mean i love the the platform that you guys have created um it's uh it's thoughtful and it's meaningful and i've heard from people from many different perspectives in the hunting community that, that appreciate panoramic outdoors and that, that like the voice you bring and the approach you bring to it. Um, these conversations don't happen in short form, right. In, mm-hmm. in, in Twitter length. I mean, there's that, I love that phrase. You know, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have time <laughs> um, because it uh, we need to, to accept that and kind of buckle in and have these long conversations. And we are not, I mean, maybe I'm just making excuses for my inability to be succinct but um they, no they take time they take they take time we need to unpack them and and um there aren't there aren't many hunting platforms that that will do it and so you have created something i think important and special and necessary in this world to get to get us to a place where we are kind of continuously improving ourselves so i appreciate you doing that and the work that you do and and uh inviting me on again Maybe maybe we'll have a third time yet here to unpack even further. But uh, we'll wish you we'll wish you luck this fall too. You get, you're gonna have to keep us posted on the the Yukon exploits because they they look absolutely fantastic. And uh, where's the, where's the best place for folks to connect with you if they're interested in having more uh, you know more great conversations or more uh, conversations about the the political non political? Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm still trying to put out content on my website landscapesandletters.com it's been slow lately but um 
yeah, so that's one place that I've kind of covered everything, a range of what we've talked about. Um, on Instagram, it's Paul Dot McCartney. Um, two C's. And then, and then two C's. That's right, two C's and no T. Uh, and then um, there's if you if you're so inclined, we have 27 episodes of the Hunt to Eat podcast that exploring a bunch of this stuff. So um, those are a few are a few places. Yeah, we. Uh... We hope to see it back up and running hotter than ever. So, um, you know, keep us posted on that front as well. But uh, otherwise, good luck in the woods, Paul, there, and uh, keep that canoe upright. And uh, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you. All right, that's a wrap on episode 136. Um, thanks again for Paul coming coming on the podcast again. I'm disappointed I missed that conversation with with him this time. I uh, I certainly had a good time chatting with him last time. I, I do feel like he is a little bit over my head sometimes. So, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> but it's pretty cool uh, having those conversations with him. I always learn a lot and get a bunch of different perspectives from him too. So, yeah. If uh, if I'm listening to someone and they they make me Google something, I consider that a successful kind of session. Yeah. Exactly. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Uh, and if, if you want to Google us, be sure to check us out on the web at panoramicoutdoors.com. We got new stuff in the store. So check that out. It might be time to start ordering things for Christmas even. So can I say the C word? Yeah, totally. Christmas decorations are out in stores already, man. So fire away. We got some toques, hats, t-shirts, hoodies, sweaters, the crew neck sweaters, buffs. Uh, we got a limited supply of coffee cups left. I actually got to check the stock on those to make sure we don't oversell. And then uh, I think we might have a few Christmas items coming up too. So stay tuned for that. But we might have some more cutting boards coming in stock. Yep. All right. Then if uh, you haven't rounded out your hunting season there, we're going to wish you luck in the woods and or in the field, wherever you might be. There's still fishing. There's still open water out there. Good luck. Keep those lines tight. Keep Anything those out there, Chaser. Keep the knives sharp. Yeah, that's important one and uh you know just keep that prop on your boat there you go catch you guys next time <laughs>